Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm David Breer, Group CEO at 11FS. In today's episode, we're going to be asking what would happen to financial services if we put the engineers in charge? You may have heard the popular phrase, the inmates are running the asylum. Well, what about the engineers are running the financial services company? The whole fintech industry is built on top of complex tech stacks constructed and maintained by engineers. Their value to the industry really has never been in doubt, but where they sit in the business structure changes from company to company. So today we put together a panel of experts to discuss how has the role of engineers changed in financial services over the years? What sort of challenges do engineers have to contend with today? And what might the future of financial services look like if we put the engineers in charge? We'll discuss all of this and more in today's show. But first, a few brief messages. Don't go anywhere. Hello and welcome, LFG people, to Fintech Insider. Watching Insider, 11FS Spotlight. 11FS Explores. Open mic night. After dark. Through our podcasts, videos, newsletters, and live events, we have a direct line to a truly global fintech community. So if you're looking to sponsor and collaborate on content that connects with everybody from fintech beginners to the biggest VCs, then chat to our team at sponsors at 11fs.com or visit 11fs.com to find out more. Long live the community. Let's get started. As always, I'm joined by a panel of amazing guests who can shed some light on this super interesting topic. First up, we have a Fintech Insider debut for Nick Stemp, who is the Engineering Director here at 11FS. Welcome to the show, Nick. Can you give the audience a bit of an introduction to you and your role here at 11FS? Sure. Thanks for inviting me to the show, David. Um, So I work at 11FS Ventures with a really talented bunch of architects and engineers. And what we do on a day-to-day basis is build apps for our customers and help them accelerate their business plans using technology. So I'm really happy to be here and looking forward to the conversation. Very, very good. Uh, We have another FinTech Insider debut for Jonas Schaubach, who is the CTO over at SumUp. Welcome to the show. Uh, Can you give us a bit of information about you and SumUp? Thank you, David. Yes, of course. My name is Johannes Schaubach, and I'm the CTO of SumUp. We build hardware and software products for small merchants to do what they love and to become successful in building a thriving business. And so that is a lot of point of sale, card readers, but also financial services like bank invoicing solutions and so on. Very, very cool. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, We have a bit of a return to, I mean, a bit of an OG of FinTech Insider, quite frankly, and the OG of FinTech more more broadly, uh, Mr. Simon Vanskalina, CTO over at BigPay. For anybody who hasn't been listening for the last uh, six years, Simon, do you want to give a a bit of a background to you and uh, everything that you're up to with BigPay? Sure. I'm Simon. I'm a CTO at BigPay. I was previously uh, one of the um, founding team at Monzo. I was there for five and a half years. Then I left and started a, uh, a little lender called Fronted. Did that for a couple of years through the uh, the pandemic. And then I, I took an opportunity out here in Singapore um, to join a, uh, a company which is very similar to Monzo uh, called BigPay, which is uh, 1.1 million consumers in Malaysia, um, about to launch in Thailand, um, really similar trajectory to Monzo, um, really similar aspirations, um, just a different market. 
Very, very cool. Thank you for joining us. I know we're standing sort of in between you and uh, Christmas do. So we're going to wrap this up in like 20 seconds, get you out there and have some fun. So, uh, uh, and last, but by no means least, we have a, a FinTech Insider debut for Elizabeth Prendergast, who is the engineering team lead over at Gapley. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. How's it going? Great. Thanks so much, David. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah. So as you said, I'm currently leading one of our engineering teams over here at Yapoli, focused in the API product space. Um, and so for those of you that don't know, Yapoli is an open banking infrastructure platform uh, focused on solving a fundamental problem in financial services today, and that's access to financial data. Very, very cool. It feels like we've probably got the right people involved to, to kind of talk about this one. I know you're all chomping at the bit to uh, take over all of your businesses in that sense, in terms of see what would actually happen in reality of this one. But uh, maybe if we get started by looking at, well, what role engineers have really traditionally played within financial services? I mean, we're talking about gigantic waterfall organizations that typically the engineers at the, uh, the order takers at the end of those processes. But I mean, how has it worked out when engineers fundamentally have been put in charge? I mean, there's good examples out there, Elizabeth, like Stripe, you know, the Collinson brothers seem to be pretty technologically savvy in terms of this. But I mean, it's worked out pretty well. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's it's expected of, of why we would have um, engineers as founders of some of these the big fintech companies that we see today. Um, I think engineers are naturally curious and just love a really difficult problem to solve. So, so that's why we've seen so many founders who come from engineering backgrounds. Um, but I also think engineers were at a bit of an advantage, whereby if we we think up a really cool solution to a really difficult problem, we're actually able to go out and build it ourselves. And we, we don't kind of waste time going off to seek out a, a technical co-founder and then having to actually go and translate that vision to, to that person as well. It's interesting that that role of sort of engineering moving and, and similar to actually other disciplines the best people can both do the skill but actually communicate it effectively as well can't they and and actually that does lend itself to you know leadership in much more broad sense but I mean what about the the sort of role engineers play in financial services at the moment you know I guess in that sense talking about you know bigger financial players so, Simon what do you think I mean Barclays and Lloyds and you know Bank of Singapore you know there's a a very different sort of view of actually where engineering sits within the organization. Sure. Yeah. Like I think if you went out and started a financial services company today, if you went out to like Excel or Index or Benchmark and said, hey, I'm starting a new bank, the first question they would have was like, who in the founding team is the engineer? I don't think you can start a financial services company now without a one of the founding team being a, a you know a techie, right? Like I think that's just that's just normal. Um, what Elizabeth said, there's a huge advantage if you can if you can solve a problem by having both, you know, the financial services and the regulated part of the problem and the technology part of the problem in the same brain at the same time, you make progress a lot quicker. And you can teach you can teach a, a, a an engineer or you know how to understand capital adequacy ratios or net interest margin a lot quicker than you can teach an MBA how to do Rust. Very, very true. Yeah, there's a there's a very different skill set in that way. And I like what you said, Elizabeth, there about problem solving. You know, Nick, obviously the the, the view there of, you know, getting the people who are really, you know, very logically minded further up into the organization to, to help solve real problems in that sense. It, it feels like definitely something that we've seen. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think getting the people who do this, the coding, who understand the problems, who can solve them, as, as Elizabeth said, you know, really close to the customer and, and yeah, fixing it less about requirements and that, that sort of food chain of stuff coming through, but more about fixing it at a point. 
Yeah. I, I sort of touched on it a little bit earlier on. I mean, my, my experience being in a big banking transformation program was very much engineering was the, like I say, it was the order taker at the end of the line. There was a waterfall process. There was, you know, people doing the shiny, exciting stuff that the senior stakeholders got excited about. And then a bunch of requirements were dumped on a bunch of people at the end of it who were like, what the hell is this and how does that happen? So, I mean, Nick, you, you must have seen that transition from order takers to to really, you know, the architects of the future in terms of where financial services are going. Yeah, completely. So, you know, I, th- I think in the past, engineers have worked against a big set of requirements and gone off and, you know, coded a room, taken months to test stuff. We're now looking at a very different world where people are working directly with product owners, product managers, thinking about what the customer wants to do and, you know, getting that code out there quickly so that they can test and learn and, and build the next feature. Yeah. And Jonas, from your perspective, I mean, where do where do engineers sit in organizations? Where are you typically seeing them popping up in terms of your interactions? Engineers need to sit at every level of the organization. I think um, we're converging to the realization that engineers are entrepreneurs and have to be, especially in the fintech world, as fintech, as the name suggests, as all about technology. So they need to sit at every level um, in terms of decision-making, in terms of innovation, in terms of, um, you know, even whenever it comes to culture, when it comes to, um, you know, what formerly was called human resources, um, when it comes to compliance, when it comes to financial auditing and controlling functions, engineering has to be everywhere, um, vertically and horizontally, um, because it's ultimately the fiber or the, maybe the DNA of what any fintech company is about. Absolutely, Johannes. I can completely understand what you're saying. Um, I can remember a time when it was so important to have an, an HR personnel person on the board. And, and I think to the point that Simon makes, you know, engineers up at the top making the decisions and, and, and choosing the direction of the company is, is so important today, particularly in fintechs. Look, I mean... So are you know, engineers more important now or less important? I think we, we've covered that quite well. What I observe, especially in the fintech world, is a commoditization of um, the actual technology piece. It's less about the ingenuity of a single algorithm or a single idea or a single component that an engineer writes, but it's a lot around getting an oversight, an overlook about an entire system, an ecosystem, and sometimes called a little bit, um, well, you know, jokingly called plumbing together different systems and ecosystems. And this commoditization that um, happens, especially in fintech, which is so close to the money, but also so close to technology, is especially fast and much faster than in other industries. Um, so that the role of an engineer is also, you know, more at the forefront of understanding what you know, the technology will be looking like because everything is accelerated in fintech from a technological point of view when it comes to AI, when it comes to, I don't know, um, all different sorts of cloud computing, security. Um, and that's that's why I think there is a higher demand, but also higher, de- like not only in engineering culture, but also in the skill set that the individual engineers have to exhibit. Mm. I mean, it, fe- it feels to me that the uh, and you know we we have the the pleasure to sort of sit in uh, kind of a a land between fintech and, and big banks in terms of people that we work with. It feels like the major change that we've seen over this period of time is the 
the whole metabolic rate of the industry fundamentally shift. And actually, I think it's not any more about little shiny things in innovation spaces. It's about materially getting things in the hands of consumers. And if you don't put engineering further up towards the front of actually making change happen, not just prototyping or, you know, making pictures of change, then you actually have to do this stuff, which is, uh, which is really important. You know, I, I guess the, the embracing of, of agile more broadly across the industry has a big part to play in this as well, you know, small multidisciplinary teams, but uh, you, you touched there on actually the, the technology changing as well. You know, we've, we've seen clouds change really fundamentally an operating model in places that have done it properly. You talk about machine learning, you talk about AI. I mean, even the innovations that we've seen in core banking spheres have changed the, the rate, the metabolic rate of the industry. But I mean, Elizabeth, how much do you see that as a, as a catalyst for change in that way? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think um, the introduction of microservices has been huge for the industry because it allows um, very small engineering teams to to own a small subset of services that actually make up a much bigger system. And by in, in by doing that, you're actually able to have a lot more ownership over kind of the, the work that you're delivering. So, you know, as an engineer, you can go from writing one line of code in the morning and having it de- deployed to production in the same day. And you're actually able to see that change end to end. And I think not only does it increase accountability for engineers, but it also greatly increases job satisfaction because you're actually seeing the, the results of what you're building um, pretty immediate as well. Yeah, that's so true. If you can shorten the feedback loops, you, you make so much quicker progress and that's that's the whole thing and that's going to accelerate so much in the next few years as we move to like toward microservices but to toward you know there's this 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 concept that came out of the um the kubernetes forum recently you know people are going to start building microservices in WebAssembly, which is really interesting because you'll be able to stitch those components together in a way that you can't really do with you know existing core banking systems and that's going to like be one another notch up in terms of the productivity of, of engineers that are building on these modern platforms and like one more advantage to come to companies that don't have a huge legacy. Yeah. I mean, arguably is that the, is that the biggest thing, you know, again, that look, you know, fintechs get this, no business starts with like a, you know, physical data centers and, you know, a, a waterfall process, you know, startups start in a, in a digital world. Is this really the biggest thing that big banks have to learn from the fintech players, Nick? Is this the is this the secret sauce? Do you think it's not? I always say it's not what you do; it's the way that you do it. That that way has a bigger impact. Yeah, I think when you look at you know a pound spent in a big bank versus a pound spent in a fintech, the fintech's going to go so much faster and do so much more. Cloud enables it; the, the components are there, the APIs are there to do that in a bank and and create that product that that pulls all the cleverness of other people's work together um, and integrate it. I just think it's almost impossible in a big bank. Yeah, we used to like we used to say like years ago, right, that software was going to eat the world one industry at a time. And it started with the music industry and then, you know, it moved on to the, the video streaming and movie rental industry. And like in the last five years, I think techies have finally broken through the wall and they're inside the bank now. Right. And now you'll start to see the the effects of that disruption as, you know, you know, the people who ran data centers for the last 30 years and, you know, got taken out to IBM golf lunches every every two weeks are, uh, are retiring. And the people who come up behind them are the ones who, who were started their career after AWS, you know, existed. The, the industry is going to fundamentally change now. The old ways of doing things are slowly being retired and, and they're not coming back. Like financial services companies now look like technology companies and will forever. Yeah. And that, that fundamentally has a big impact across the whole industry as well, doesn't it? That isn't just a, 
hey, we can get code live quicker, as you said, Elizabeth, in terms of atomizing change. I mean, this takes gigantic pools of risk out of, uh, of the industry in terms of, you know, if you release cycles three months and you're putting such a gigantic thing live, then, you know, your ability to really understand what went wrong or, you know, roll that back uh, fundamentally different when you're atomizing change in the way that you describe. But maybe at this point, let's let's look forward then rather than uh, rather than back. I feel like this there's some sort of Christmas past, present and future thing. I can't quite work out on the fly here, but uh, maybe if we if we sort of uh, can look, chat GPT be the ghost of Christmas future. Maybe. Yeah, never know. Never know. It's going to put a lot of people out of business for sure. Uh, maybe if we, we look to the challenges that engineers face in financial services today, though. I mean, when engineers are, are actually in charge of organizations, you know, what problems do they sort of have to contend with? My, my background, you know, I did a, my undergrad was in computing. I did hardware and software. Um, when we had to stand up and do presentations, my sporting background really helped me out. I'm not sure a lot of the other people did. So are, are engineers natural leaders in that sense, do you think, in terms of the, the tendencies of, of management or, or uh, you know, the communication skills that are required? I feel like I'm offending everybody on this podcast right now. But uh, Simon, what do you think? Is there a, is there a type or is that a, a stereotype? I think the like the stereotype of like engineers being the ones who got picked on at school and decided to stay in the library over lunch instead is probably used to be true. I mean, it was certainly true for me. But I think you know the engineering is like everybody recognizes that computers are changing the world, and you can't you, know, you can't live in this world without being touching technology in some way. So I think that's that's probably not as as important anymore. I think I, I've met some brilliant leaders who are able to do both. And I think it's probably necessary. I think, like I said before, I think you can't really have a senior management or an exco of a, of a bank or a fintech without having technology deeply embedded in it. So I just think it's, it's, it's sort of, you've got to have both now. Exactly. And on to that point from Simon, I think we may not in five years time speak about engineers and non-engineers. That's just something that a relic that we keep on carrying on since the nineties. It's, really not an option anymore to not understand how a microservice works or how what open uh, you know api first means or i don't know bounded context domain driven design is a necessity at sum up if you join then you have to read accelerate you have to read team topologies you have to read these basic fundamental engineering books that infuse a culture but also technology knowledge about technology this there is no in between engineer non-engineer there's it's a seemingly you know it's a very the gradient is very very you know smooth um and the greatest leaders have been coding for years but there's also a lot of great leaders at least some of them have not been coding and started to code when they became a vp and stuff like that so that's i think that we will not be speaking about engineer non-engineer in, in five years time yeah it's also like it's amazing. Like I'm, I'm just going to talk about ChatGPT from now until the end of the end of the podcast. I'm sorry, because <laughs> I think it, it does change everything. I I think that a lot of very very smart people think of themselves as non technical because they tried coding once and it sucked and it was really hard and there was no one. In, they were they weren't in the zone of proximal learning. There was no one to help them get past that and become technical, right? And it really grates on me when people go, "Oh, I'm not technical." Like that's a thing, right? And ChatGPT is like having the most amazing patient teacher sitting next to you. And if you, if you can work out what the, how to describe what the problem you have is, it just gives you the answer. And it feels like cheating. I was sitting on the couch the other night and I haven't written any code in three years. And I like bashed out a quick go microservice 
and then it got it working perfectly working on Replit. And then I just asked it to like translate the thing to Rust and it just did it in one go. And I'm like, I don't even know Rust. So I think the, 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 the barrier to entry is gone. It's gone. Anybody can, anybody that is smart that can describe what they want and, you know, will be able to, to write code. And that's going to usher in a new era of human productivity, honestly. Yeah, I, th- I think they're also kind of on the flip side of that. There is a bit of a, a misconception, I think, about tech and, and fintech that you have to have a technical background before getting into the industry. Um, that's certainly a misconception that I had before I kind of um, got, got into fintech itself. And, and I've since met, you know, lots of brilliant people who work in the industry who don't have technical backgrounds. But I think what makes them different is that they have the desire to learn and that they're not afraid of learning. Yeah, and all of those people can now pick up ChatGPT and bash out a microservice they can even like i mean don't look at what chat chat gpt needs now it's a toy you can play with it through a website but in six months time you'll be able to ask chat gpt to connect to your mono repo and you'll basically say to it like hey we want to change this particular service so it you know takes first name last name instead of just name or change the address field so it works like this and it'll do it it'll do it perfectly and you won't need to fill out a change request you won't need to to bug a, a level five or a level six engineer to get stuff done it will just work and I just can't stress how amazing the last couple of days have been in terms of like the the realization that the whole world just changed. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I should say this podcast is brought to you by Chat Chat. No, it's not. <laughs> this podcast uh, was written uh, by Chat GPT. <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's an interesting one in that context. To your point, Elizabeth, about learning because actually, I mean, I always say you know my background is more sports than it is it is business, and I I think sports people are really good at learning through failure. I think engineers are very similar, right? Because, you know, yes, you're great at writing code, but inevitably there's always bugs. There's always things you've got to, you know, debug and you've got to go through that process. So you kind of learn to fail and learn and iterate and test, which I think is a, a skill set that, um, you know, I think more business focused people really struggle with in terms of that, uh, that, that sort of failure loop in that way. But uh, I, I mean, Nick, uh, I mean, I, I know I have, but working with people who, maybe you're in leadership roles who don't have technical backgrounds, actually it can often lead to solutions that are put forward or propositions that are put forward that are um, not technically possible is probably a nice way of, uh, of saying it, but um, you know, it can cause issues, can't it? Yeah, absolutely. But I, I think picking up on the points other people have made, I'd also make a slightly different point that, that having people that do different things, just like a sports team, isn't necessarily a bad thing. You know, having people that, that, are better at converting a try or whatever it may be that you know in, in engineering terms not everyone has to be a pure coder who's building stuff having a product person who's got that real focus on the customer can actually build the team and make it a lot stronger so that's the first point i make and i think if if you've got the voice of the engineers um in the room then obviously the decision making that happens around products and, and how they're going to be enabled is going to be stronger architects engineers whoever it may be are going to give a better product and i you know everyone talks about this shift left mentality i think decision making and, and choosing the right things up front are, are absolutely going to make it more efficient and faster and, and get to the market quicker yeah so I, I mean you guys all sort of live in the future you know elizabeth simon uh, Johannes, you, you guys all kind of live in the future to a certain degree. You know, we've got a lot of bankers listening to this going, yeah, but we've got insane amounts of tech debt in our back office. We've got monolithic structures on monolithic structures, and we've got this version of this old system that nobody could even do anymore. You know, like, so, so you know, this is where people want to get to. But 
you know, technology debt, Simon, in, in big financial services organizations, you know, JP Morgan come out and say they're going to spend $7 billion to try and solve that problem. You know, like, this is a big issue to get to where you're talking about, right? Yeah. I, I mean, tech, I, I, I'm one of those people who thinks that the phrase technology debt is completely overused. I think you, it's not so much technology debt, it's maintenance. Technology debt sort of implies that you, you know, you, you get some reward by, by, by building a crappy system faster and you don't. Like, that's not true at all. We used to think you built a specification and then you maintained it. And that's just not the way technology companies build software. Technology companies build, like the machine that technology company building is expertise to operate, to build and operate and modify and maintain the system, right? And if you've got to a point where your system isn't working as well as it should, it's because you no longer have the expertise to build, operate, maintain, modify and improve the system, right? So it's not tech debt. It is, it is, you know, the, the organization is, the machine is people and, and processes and software and hardware and cloud and vendor relationships and management, right? It's, it's all of those things is the machine. The machine is not something that you, you got, you know, a, a, an outsourcing company to build three years ago and you don't even have the source code for. Like, that's not, that's not true. And is that, for me, that comes down to, I mean, you can layers of that onion in that sense. But for me, that comes down to, you know, projects building technology features, that actually, to your point, have no things are managed like projects, not products. And actually, you know, technology is, is a is a grown thing, isn't it? It's not something that you you deliver and walk away from because it becomes irrelevant really, really quickly, right? Yeah, I used to walk around Monzo saying vendors are vipers, and every time anybody would listen to me, and, and when somebody was talking about outsourcing something or buying a piece of software to do something, I would just be like, vendors are vipers. Like if you let them in your organization, then they'll they'll send you licensing requests for. They'll get more expensive every year, and then three years in, they'll they'll have a mandatory audit, which you didn't read was in the licensing conditions, and boom, you're on the hook. And like vendors of vipers, just build your own software. Yeah, I think anybody outsourcing their intelligence, it's not a it's not a good place to go. Yeah, engineering or anything around the organization, in that sense, right? You uh, you kind of want to keep the smart people in your organization as much as possible, don't you? But uh, I, I mean, what do you think on that, Elizabeth? In terms of the the tech side of, side of things, you know, is is technology debt just down to bad budgeting in the way that people kind of do it in big organizations, or is it something more uh, deep seated than that? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think, um, first of all, I think working in fintech, because we're working on systems that are relatively still quite new um, compared to what the big banks are working with, um, we're quite privileged that we don't have maybe as much technical debt, as you would say, um, as they do. But I think it's also, you know, a, an important tool to leverage when needed, when you're trying to get a product to market faster. So you might be building a quick and dirty solution that is going to create, quote unquote, technical debt for your system. But as long as you kind of recognize that and communicate it up front, it ensures that you're able to deliver your product in a bit of a faster way. Um, and then make sure that you also have the processes in place to actually go back and incrementally improve upon that technical debt and, and be constantly thinking about evolving the system and, and moving it towards the future. Very good, very good. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with you very shortly. Here at 11FS, we believe in explaining FS without the BS. That's why we created our 11FS Explore series, weekly videos that break down a complicated financial services topic into something everyone can get their head around, such as... On ramping. Buy now, pay later. The cost of living. ESG. Stable points. Telematics insurance. And inclusive design. Search 11FS Explores on YouTube now. 
Okay, so let's have a little bit of a look now at what it would actually look like if the engineers were in charge there. Nick, if I put you slap bang in the center of building a brand new organization and went, go on then, make that happen, um, where would you start? Uh, and, and what would engineers fundamentally change in the way in which organizations are run today? So um, I actually asked our engineers this question. Uh, knowing it was coming up, and uh, the, the first first bit of Did feedback they all get was, rid of me immediately. Like, <laughs> no, 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 that's, no, that's no not, not at all, David. <laughs> the first bit of feedback was around vision and goals. What they wanted were defined requirements for the organisation. So perhaps a bit old school there. Um, yeah, hooking up with some of the stuff Simon said. Another one immediately asked ChatGPT what the answer was, um, and it told him that it was focus on technical expertise and data driven decisions as well as a greater emphasis on innovation and collaboration. Yeah, and then I guess that the impact and what they thought would happen if you put the engineers in charge of, uh, of the thing was chaos. <laughs> ranging from total chaos to organized chaos. <laughs> that was one of my immediate thoughts as well, I have to say. <laughs> and, uh, at that point, I did, my head went to uh, Elon Musk claims he's an engineer, and, and let's just look at what's happening at Twitter at the moment. Well, good engineers don't necessarily make good uh, HR managers, potentially, in, in that sense. But uh, and I, I like the, uh, the, uh, the, the chat answer in that one. It sounded like the beginning of a religion, potentially, rather than the beginning of an organization in that sense. But uh, uh, Simon, maybe same question to you. What, what uh, would you or what would engineers change in the way in which organizations structure? I think that data-driven decisions is like a, a bit of a fundamental regardless, right? Yeah, so I think that the main, like, I don't, I don't think, I think when you say engineers, I think we are particularly saying people who've come from the coding path background, you know, the coding path to where they are in their careers now. I think there's some engineers who would have a tendency to work on hobby projects. I think, you know, people like engineers love to scratch an itch. That's what they always say, right? And like, you'll find in some organizations that like, tiny parts of the system are massively over-engineered. Like I remember I worked at a, a big American bank for three years and, and and there was a team there that was basically building a command line, like a, a Unix command line tool that had nothing to do with anything. And, and like 15 minutes of Googling would have told them that there was a much better way of doing it. And they'd been working on it for like two years. And so I, I definitely think like you need to, like in, in a transparent organization like Monzo or BigPay, where the CEO stands up and says like, this is what is existential for us. This is what is important for us. This is what you should be working on. This is what's important to our customers. This is what's important to our bottom line. Now go at it. Then I think in that type of organization, you 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 can engineers can build a theory of mind of the CEO and then they just get on with it. They do the right thing. But I think where you don't have a transparent organization, where you're not, if you're in an organization that's not sharing the real numbers, not sharing the real challenges, um, trying to keep, you know, you know, treat engineers like mushrooms and feed, you know, keep them in the dark and, and feed them fertilizer. Then I think you're in a, I don't think, I think that's the problem. It's organizational. It's not the fact that engineers, you know, make particularly bad managers or particularly bad leaders. I just think that they, we're probably comparing them to organizations where they're not, you know, fully empowered and pluripotent and, and have all of the information they need to make the right decision. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a funny, wasn't it? They, people always sort of say, look, if you've got a if you've got a digital strategy, you're probably not digital. If you've got a, uh, a you know a, a DNI strategy, you probably don't have a great level of diversity across your organisation. I mean, everybody in big banking has called themselves a technology company in the last sort of decade. You know, calling themselves it rather than necessarily being it in that way. Uh, and almost that's a, I guess it's a shift that they're trying to. Um, kind of uh, create rather than the reality that there is in, the, in that sense. But 
But maybe coming to you on this one, Elizabeth, I mean, what would organisations look like in that way? I mean, what would the what would be uh, an example of something that I, I feel like I'm getting you all to stitch up your CEO here slightly. But if you were in charge, what would you change at your organisation? Yeah, I think kind of as, as Simon referred to earlier, there would probably be um, a lot of really cool projects that got get started, but maybe actually aren't seen through in the end. Um, I think sometimes engineers, we need that push by kind of product and leadership and marketing to actually get our product out to market and um, not just kind of focus on the really interesting, inc- intricate details of what we're working on. Um, so that's kind of what I would worry about, but it, it would be a lot of fun, I think. <laughs> yeah. And, and Johannes, do, do you see that, there is going to be more of this shift. You know, this is a sort of a, a move that we'll continue to see for engineering talent becoming more and more prevalent at senior levels across organizations. You know, the, the CEO, the, uh, the CIO, the COO of, of organizations, almost being it being a necessity that they've got engineering, you know, technical background. Yes, for sure. That's going to happen um, not only over time, but also because of the skills um, and because the necessity in cultural change of you know passing decision power down and that is something that i felt engineers in particular are very good at and understanding that you know the leaders are usually the stupidest those dumbest persons in the room um, or the high level vp and above especially and they are relying on the knowledge the profound know-how um you know that is in the teams in order to make and to support big decisions even strategic ones um, and so, yes, this will absolutely happen. And with that, I believe a more agile culture will also come because engineers, you know, breathe and live uh, an agile culture that at least the successful organizations um, usually do at this at some degree, more, some more to the books than others, but um, that's definitely going to happen, yes. Besides, and also to Elizabeth, a wonderful earlier point, if I was to start a new um, if I was to start a new, say, fintech or was to um, build a competitor to a large bank, I would focus on building a learning organization first. Because the change in technology is so rapid, and we just talked about ChatGPT and what it will do and help us with you know, tech debt and other pieces, is so fast that the only way of staying ahead of the curve and remaining innovative and survive and be the, not necessarily survival of the fittest, but survival of the most adaptive is to remain learning. And that is ultimately what I would put first if I was to seek um, building a new organization, be it an engineer or anybody else. Yeah, Stripe describes their culture as a, as a bunch of, uh, a bunch of, book publishers and a bunch of uh, Hermione Grangers. And, and I think that's a really good, a really good apt description of, uh, of their sort of culture. I was just thinking again on culture, you know, we've talked about the people at the top not having enough time to get involved in the decisions and things. And maybe actually it's, it's a cultural thing here of delegation. So it's not necessarily putting the engineers in charge, but it's empowering them to do the right things. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I mean, I think the, it comes, comes back to that point of the change that we're seeing in the industry more broadly, isn't it? We're, Fintech is an industry of change. It is an industry of finding a, a problem from a consumer perspective or from an industry perspective and, and solving it to actually making things happen. Whereas financial services more broadly has been a, an industry of cry, trying to sort of create uh, rigidity and stability, uh, really, in, in that way. I, I think this is almost we're at the end of the cycle of that's that move from the analog world to the to the digital world. And that's a an exciting place to be. If I could give everybody some advice, like um, 
I'd stick to the thing that you really love doing. If, uh, if being a CTO is the thing that you love doing, great. Being a CEO is like the thing you love doing with all of the other bits of admin around it as well. So uh, uh, if, you, if that's not what you're up for, don't think it's it. It's, uh, Elon Musk uh, probably has a thousand people doing all the bits that he doesn't like to do as well. So, uh, um, all right, maybe if we close out then and bring it back to that initial question then. You know, what would actually happen to financial services if we put engineers in, in charge? Like in, in, you know, two or three words or, or less. Elizabeth, go on. You're up first. Uh, more innovation, less products to market. Go on then, Simon. You're up next. I think the engineers already are in charge. Nice. Whether some organizations know it or not. Uh, Nick, what do you think? I think better perfect solutions, but coming at a financial cost. That sounds like almost like a Spider-Man quote. I like that one. Uh, Johannes, what, what do you think? I think this is, uh, it's like Simon said, it's already the case. That's number one. If all, like theoretically, if all big companies and banks were run by engineers, I would feel that we would see faster innovation. We would see a better customer service. It sounds ironic, but I would honestly think this would happen because the customer centricity would actually increase but we would also see far more bankruptcies because i think the leaps the risks the bets that will be taken will be larger we will certainly see more platformization so more api first sort of businesses open banking adoption would probably be much faster yeah those are the three things i can think of i agree with all of those for me, I would actually go back to what I said earlier on. For me, it would be less risky. Like, I actually think the industry as a whole would become less risky because essentially the things that people were doing would be atomized in the way in which change needs to be done. The actual core infrastructure, and I don't just mean like a core bank, you know, everything that is financial services is technology. And actually, if that was better loved and, you know, more understood in the way in which the industry needs it to be, then it kind of feels like that we'd have a much less risky industry all around in that way. So uh, on that note, we are going to have to wrap up, though. Uh, I know uh, everybody's got uh, different things to go and get on, whether it's their days or uh, their Christmas party. So uh, we uh, we better better let everybody get off to that. But um, before we close out today, it's worth mentioning if you enjoyed this discussion uh, you should definitely go and check out episode seven of the 11FS Decoding series on YouTube, where we ask, how has software evolution influenced banking today? Um, that does wrap up today's show, though. So thank you so much for joining. Where can people learn a little bit more about you and the stuff that you're up to? Nick, you first. So 11FS.com and for me, LinkedIn, Nick Stemper. Very, very cool. Thank you very much. Uh, Simon, how about you? I have a website. I have simon.vc. So if you want to get in touch with me or... You like follow me on any social media platform, whether it's run by Elon Musk or not. I'm on Simon.vc. Okay, okay, all right. Uh, Johannes, where where can people learn a little bit more about you and the stuff that you're up to? I'm on LinkedIn as well. Um, I don't have a website anymore. Shame on me. And we've written a handbook on the SumUp website where um, we try to put down a lot of the thoughts and the thinking and the cultural frameworks that we're trying to run to you know, have a purposeful and meaningful workplace um, to help small merchants, um, you know, standing on their own foot and being entrepreneurs. Um, I think these are the two places I would look for. Very cool. Elizabeth? Yep, you can find me on LinkedIn as Elizabeth Prendergast, uh, and you can find out more about Yapoli at yapoli.com. 
Very cool. As for me, I'm always lurking somewhere on LinkedIn these days. It's uh, always easy to find me, I have to say, the amount of content we put out. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. If you do like what you've heard, then subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It really helps us make it better and also helps other people find the show as well. As always, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider. Or if you really want to, email us on podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Goodbye. Thank you.